Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. You would be turning in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And just to remind you, starting next week, we're going to take a break from Samuel. We'll be beginning a series of Christmas sermons uh, beginning next week, looking at each week of Advent, hope, joy, love, and peace. And then, of course, rejoicing in the Incarnation on Christmas Eve together. And so we'll be taking a break for a bit from 1 Samuel, but toward the beginning of the year, we'll be jumping right back in, picking up in chapter 9. Well, let me read for Samuel 8 for us. We're going to be looking at the entire chapter, so I'll read that chapter for us, and then we will pause and pray and ask for the Lord's help. So 1 Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, for the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. Let's pray together. Father, we ask uh, once again this week for your help. Father, we acknowledge together even right now that if not for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we would have no hope this morning. Your spirit would not be dwelling in us this morning. 
our eyes would not be awakened to see the glories of Christ on display in the truth of your word. And so, Father, we are fixing our hope on Jesus, on your goodness and your grace and your mercy that you have shown us in him. And so, Father, we ask you to do the very thing you have promised to do. And we ask you every single week, we plead with you to be at work in us by the power of your spirit through the truth of your word, that you might shape us and conform us more to the likeness of Jesus. Father, we pray that you would do that this morning through the conviction of sin. I pray that we would heed the warning that is intended for us in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Help us to see just how devastating it can be for God to give us what we want. And so, Father, we pray that you would even use this passage to conform our wants to your wants, that we would not be in rebellion against you, that we would desire the things that you desire, that you would give us the courage to walk in obedience to you. And so, Father, we pray that you would shape us and conform us to the likeness of Jesus through the truth of your word this morning. And so, Father, I ask that you would guard my words, allow me to only speak what is true of you and true of your word. And I pray that you would guide us into all truth for the good of your people and for the glory of your name. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the uh, first eight chapters of 1 Samuel is a bit of a roller coaster ride, if we're being honest. And Uh, You may not have been here every week, but there are highs and there are lows to these first eight chapters of 1 Samuel. I mean, things begin seemingly fairly well. Hannah is praised to the Lord. She's barren and he answers her prayer. He gives her Samuel. She does what she said she would do and faithfully takes him to the temple and prays this beautiful prayer at the beginning of chapter 2. And then toward the end of chapter 2, we're we're heading rapidly downhill, and we find out about Eli and the, the high priest and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests that were serving under him, and just how wicked and rebellious and cruel they were to God's people, stealing the sacrifices, laying with women at the entrance to the house of the Lord, just doing terrible, awful things. And because of that, God brings his wrath and justice against them, against the house of Eli, And against his people, the Philistines wipe out 30,000 men of Israel in battle. It was a, Samuel says, a very great slaughter that day. They capture the Ark of the Covenant, take it back to uh, the land of the Philistines with them in their victory. But then things start looking maybe like they're on the upswing again, because while the Ark of God is there with the Philistines, God is bringing his justice and vengeance on the Philistines. He's exerting his sovereign justice over the Philistine people because of their rebellion, and he is bringing victory and honor to his name. And eventually, as we move into chapter 6, the Ark heads back to Jerusalem. Or sorry, not back to Jerusalem, but back to God's people, back to Israel. And even as it heads back, we discover that God's people are still not walking in faithfulness and they disobey the Lord. They don't cover the ark up. They look at the ark and he strikes down a great number of men that day for their disobedience to the Lord. And so now we're on a downslope again. But then chapter seven comes and we're back on the way up because God brings Samuel. He's mature leader of God's people now. He comes forward. The people are crying out. They're lamenting after the Lord, longing seemingly for return to the Lord. Samuel helps direct those desires. He calls them to repentance, to put away their foreign gods, the bells and the Ashtaroth. And the people obey and they put away the foreign gods. And it says they serve the Lord God only. It seems like they find, they're finally going 
going in the right direction. They plead with Samuel to pray for them because the Philistines are getting ready to attack. He prays. The Lord answers. It says the Lord brought a mighty thunder against the Philistines. He wipes them out, defeats them. The people run after the Philistines and defeat them. Samuel says, all right, we're, we're here. And he sets up an Ebenezer a stone to remind them that thus far the Lord has helped them, this stone of remembrance to remind them of God's faithfulness. And then in chapter 8, we're heading back downhill again. Now, perhaps it shouldn't be surprising because after all, Samuel, the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel comes on the hills of the book of Judges, which is essentially the exact same pattern. It's God's people rebelling, God bringing judgment, the people suffering, crying out to God. He brings a judge to rescue them from their oppression. They live well for a while, but in their prosperity, in their peace, they forget who God is again. They rebel against him. God brings an oppressor to punish them. They cry out to God. He brings a judge to deliver them. And then they head back down the other side of the hill once again. The history of Israel is sadly predictable. It's almost as predictable as a Christmas Hallmark movie, right? You know that high school sweetheart is going to show up at some point in the movie. It's just, it's going to happen. You just shouldn't be surprised. This is who they are. They are continually rebelling against God. And what it should remind us of is that walking faithfully with Christ is not a one-day affair, it's not a one-week effort. It's not a one-year effort. It's not even a one-decade endeavor. It's a lifetime of pursuing faithfulness and obedience to Him. And 1 Samuel chapter 8 serves as a warning to us not to join them in this roller coaster ride, but instead to endure. We need to be warned of how they ended up heading down the other side of the hill. What is it that caused them to head back towards sin and disobedience? I'm reminded of Hebrews 10.36, that says to us, we have need of endurance. We have need of endurance. So how do we endure? How do we not be on the roller coaster ride that the Israelites were on? How do we not head back down the other side of that hill? Well, we need to heed the warning for us in chapter 8. What is it that brought them back into a position of disobedience to the Lord? What is this path that leads to sin and disobedience? And we're going to see three steps that they took that led them in that direction. One, God's faithfulness forgotten. Two, his gracious warning ignored. And three, the sovereign king rejected. God's faithfulness forgotten. Gracious warning ignored. Sovereign king rejected. Let's look first at God's faithfulness forgotten. Look there with me again at verses 1 through 8, particularly right now at verse 1. It says, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. Now, again, this is a helpful and important time stamp that the author of Samuel is giving us. A lot of time has passed. We are now approaching the end of Samuel's life, though we must say Samuel doesn't actually die until chapter 25. But this is fast forwarding us to the end of Samuel's life. And so it lets us know that a long time has passed. Samuel has been faithfully serving God's people for a long period of time. We saw that summary back at the end of chapter 7. Samuel sets up the stone in chapter 7, verse 12, verse 13. The Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. The hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. 
All his days, God protected them from the uh, potential of invasion from the Philistines. Not only that, chapter 7, verse 15, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He faithfully served God's people. God blessed them because of Samuel's faithfulness. He protected them from their enemies. And here they are at the end of Samuel's life when God has been so kind to them and given them this peace. But his time seems to be coming to an end. And because of that, verse 1 tells us that he made his sons judges over Israel. But of course, though that should have been a good thing, we're told in verse 2 that it was not because Joel or Joel and Abijah were, were also wicked men, just like Hophni and Phinehas were wicked men. You see the description there in verse 3. They did not walk in his ways, meaning the ways of their father Samuel, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. They were motivated by what was in it for them. And anytime you have a leader who is in it for what he can gain, he will pervert justice. He will accept bribes. He will not be a just ruler. And so his sons were wicked men, just like Hophni and Phinehas. But I I do want to pause here for for just a brief moment and, and just make a bit of an aside. I think it's important that we don't thereby lump Samuel in with Eli. Eli was directly condemned by God for what he did. God tells Eli back in chapter 2, you honored your sons Hophni and Phinehas above me. You shared in the table of their stolen sacrifices. It says you fattened yourself on the table of their stolen sacrifices. God brought judgment against Eli, not just because of the sins of Hophni and Phinehas, but because of the sins of Eli. Eli was a wicked man also because of his failure to remove his sons, because of his failure to effectively rebuke his sons, because he shared with his sons in the privilege of their, of their corruption. We don't see that happening with Samuel. God is faithful to Samuel. It seems that Samuel was faithful to God. It says that his sons did not walk in his ways, meaning Samuel continued to walk faithfully. This is important because I think sometimes we read this and we assume, man, Samuel must have been a deadbeat dad. We don't know how good of a father Samuel was or was not. We do know that God did not condemn him because of his sons. So I just want to say that as a brief aside. Parents are instructed to raise their children in the fear of the Lord. 100% we ought to do it. But the Lord doesn't promise that perfect parenting will always lead to righteous children. It's not a guarantee And so we shouldn't assume because the sons were rebellious that somehow Samuel was rebellious. A parent can do everything right and still have a child turn their back on the Lord and rebel against them. So let's be cautious that we don't judge Samuel by the actions of his sons because God's word doesn't judge Samuel by the actions of his sons. God's word does judge Eli because of his wickedness in relation to his sons. Nevertheless, the point is, Samuel appoints his sons, hoping they're going to do well. They do not do well. They're wicked, greedy men. The people can see their wickedness on display. They know that that Joel and Abijah are wicked and greedy men. And so they say to him in verse 4, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, Samuel, you're old and your sons don't walk in your ways. So what are we going to do? Your time's coming to an end. Your sons are failures. We need to come up with some kind of 
solution. And so they say, appoint for us, you see this at the end of verse 5, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now, if we just stopped right here in verse 5, we probably would not catch just how simple this request was. Because, look, from a human perspective, it seems reasonable, right? They've seen this movie before. What happened with Hophni and Phinehas? They were terrible, wicked men who abused, spiritually abused, even physically abused God's people. Terrible men. And because of their wicked actions, God's justice and wrath ended up coming upon the whole nation. Right? The Philistines came and wiped out 30,000 men in one battle. They don't want to see that on repeat. They don't want to return to those days. They don't want the Philistines to come in and wipe them out. And so they're saying, look, give us a king like the other nations have so that we will be protected from these invading armies who will come. You see that even later in the chapter, that that's ultimately their motivation in verse 20 that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles and protect us. But as we continue to read, we find out that this was not a righteous request at all. Verse 6 says that this thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. Why was it sinful for God's people to ask for a king? Verse 7 goes on to say, the Lord says to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. This tells us why it was sinful. Their action of asking for a king was an action of rejecting God as their king. That's why it was sinful for them to do. And verse 8 even goes on to say, look, Samuel, this is how my people have always operated. You see that in verse 8? From the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, they are constantly forsaking me and serving other gods. It's that roller coaster we talked about. They're just constantly turning their back on God. They're constantly forsaking him. And God is saying to Samuel, this is just one more example of what seems to be their enduring legacy up to this point. So again, why? Why this response from Samuel and then from God when they asked for a king? And to complicate the question or or to lay a difficulty upon the question, we even have Deuteronomy chapter 17, Moses telling God's people that it's okay to ask for a king or to desire a king. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 15, which happened long before the days of Samuel Moses says, Deuteronomy 17, 15, You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose, one from among your brothers. You shall set as king over you. So it's not that a desire for a king is necessarily evil. That's not the substance of what's happening here because Moses told them in Deuteronomy 17, that day would come. So what is the issue in 1 Samuel chapter 8? The issue is the motive and the heart of God's people. They are making a decision out of fear because they have forgotten God's faithfulness to them. And it's even more ironic because literally at the end of chapter 7, what was the last thing we saw Samuel do? He set up the Ebenezer. Don't forget the Lord has been good to you. Don't forget the Lord has helped you. Don't forget what he's done. He's faithful. In fact, they've already forgotten You know, they felt threatened because, look, Samuel's sons are disobedient like Hophni and Phinehas were disobedient. But what ultimately happened? What did God do when Hophni and Phinehas rebelled? 
He brought his justice and he raised up Samuel. That's what chapter 7 is all about. Yes, there were two disobedient sons who shouldn't have been wicked, but God took care of his people. He gave them Samuel out of the, the kindness and generosity of his heart. He prepared Samuel for that day. He gave them Samuel and he led them faithfully. That's the evidence that is piled on in chapter 7. All that Samuel does, calling his people to repentance, praying for them, serving for them, interceding for them. What a gift of God Samuel was to them. How God rescued them and cared for them through Samuel. Did they pick him? No, God provided him miraculously from a barren woman. That's the whole point of chapter one. This is God's doing. And yet here they are. They don't see a way forward in their wisdom. And so they think there's no way God can do it again. And instead of waiting on the Lord to provide for them like he always has, they desire to take action into their own hands. The whole evidence of the entire book of Judges, every time they cried out, what did God do? He gave them someone to deliver them and rescue them every single time. And he just did it in the life of Samuel, but yet they have already forgotten God's faithfulness. So they are rejecting God who provided Samuel for them. You see that in verse 7. God says, look, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me from being king over them. Look, I, I gave them you, and yet they still don't trust me. Yet they still don't believe me. They still don't remember how faithful I am to you. They failed to heed the Ebenezer that Samuel set up for them, and instead they decided to take matters into their own hands. Look, we talked about this last week. But one of the first steps toward disobedience and sin and rebellion is forgetting that God is faithful. One of the first steps toward disobedience and sin is forgetting that God is faithful. The first step toward doubt is forgetting that God will provide. And then we make the tragic mistake of taking our life into our own hands and trying to work out solutions in our own wisdom instead of remembering that God has provided and he always will for his people, forgetting that he is working for our ultimate good. Therefore, I'll say it again, just as I said it last week when we talked about Samuel setting up the Ebenezer. One of the most important things you can do in your walk with Christ is to find intentional ways to mark down his faithfulness to you. Be intentional about laying down markers, whether it's journaling, whatever it is. Be intentional about remembering how God has gotten you thus far. Remembering his faithfulness to you. Look, what a great opportunity you have this Thursday to do that very thing, right? Thanksgiving is this Thursday. What better way could you spend Thanksgiving than spending a little bit of time with your family, giving thanks to God for his faithfulness to you? Lay that reminder down. Put that Ebenezer up in the conversation. Remember how faithful God has been to you. If you're not intentional about it, you will forget. That's why we need each other. We talked about that last week. We even need each other to remind one another, he's been faithful to me. Let me tell you what he did for me. He'll do the same for you. Let's be sure we're reminding one another that God is faithful so that we don't take matters into our own hands and reject him because we are instead turning to the ways of the world. And so the first step towards sinful disobedience is forgetting God's faithfulness. But the next thing we see that the people do is that they ignore his warning, the gracious warning ignored. Look there with me in verses 9 through 18. 
Look at verse 9 for now in particular. God says, Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the way of the king who shall reign over them. Here, God essentially tells Samuel to obey the request that the people are making. Let them have what they're asking for. But before you do, give them one last opportunity to take their request back. And the reason we know that's God's intention for the warning is because when he gets to the end of the warning, in verse 19, it says, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. Meaning the intention of the warning was giving them one last chance to not make this request, to not reject God from being king over them. What a, what a gracious gift of God to say, look, give them what they want, but give them one last opportunity to change their mind. Tell them what it's going to be like if I give them what they're asking for. Listen, this is such an incredible gift of God, this opportunity, this warning that he provides for them before he gives them what they're asking for. Look, it's often true that one of the most tragic things that can happen in our lives is that God gives us what we want. Because often what we want is not what's good. It's not what's right. It's not what's best. And here God says to them, look, if I give you what you want, are you sure you really want it? Because this is what it's going to be like if you get what you're asking for. And it reminds me of if you've been around children who try, who want to try spicy food for the first time. I can't remember if we did this this year or last year, but we've grown jalapenos before. And if you let them get, you know, where there's striations on the jalapeno, get them really nice and spicy, not pickled jalapenos, the, the raw ones that are especially hot. And we grow those and we like spicy food and we bring them in. And of course, we, we grew them and the kids want to eat them. And, and the child will say, no, I really want to try it. And like, I don't think you want to try it. And the five-year-old says, no, I really, really want to try it. And you're like, okay, well, I'll cut off the end, but don't eat the seeds. No, I want to try it all. And they keep begging and they keep begging until what do you finally do? Okay, be my guest. It's going to burn your mouth. Water is not going to help. It's probably going to make it worse. Be warned. And they bite the jalapeno and it is an immediate look of horror on their face. What have I done to myself? And they reach for their water and it makes it worse. And they in desperation start running around the room not knowing what to do to get this pain out of their mouth. But it's what they wanted, right? They don't listen to your warnings, even though you're trying to be kind. Well, look, God is saying to the people of Israel, you don't know what you're asking for. And so he lists out, depending on how you break it apart, something like eight warnings for them in verses 11 through 18. Number one, he will take your sons for his chariots and foot soldiers. Two, he will appoint men, which is just another way of saying he's going to take them. He will appoint men as commanders. He's going to appoint men to plow his ground, to reap his harvest, to, to make implements for war. In other words, your men are going to be taken away, and they're going to have to do a lot of work to produce supplies for the army. It's not just going to be about the men it takes to be soldiers. It's going to be about the men he takes to do everything else that needs to be done behind the scenes for the logistics of a standing military. He's going to take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks to provide for this massive army that you're asking for to be protecting you from the nations around you. He's going to take from you, number four, the best of your fields and vineyards for his servants to provide for him. 
Number five, he's going to take a tenth of all of your produce. Number six, he's going to take your servants and your livestock and put them to work for him. Number seven, he's going to take a tenth of your flock. And number eight, you see there in verse 17, you shall be his slaves. Now, I don't know about you, but I think I would rethink my request. Is this really what we want? Notice everything about this, every bit of the warning is about what he is going to take from them. He's going to take, and he's going to take, and he's going to take. He's going to take from you. Many things that you hold precious, he's going to make it his own. He's just going to take from you. Is that really what you want? His main concern will not be serving you. It will be serving himself. And I just have to stop here. I can't go on without saying how dramatically opposite of this our King Jesus is. Our Jesus that came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, as Matthew 20, 28 says. Jesus didn't come to take and to take and to take and to take from us. He came to give and to give and to give and to give to us and to lay his life down that he might give us everything and more than we could ever dream of. But that's not this king. This king is going to take and keep taking. He will reign to be served and to take whatever he needs. And therefore God says to them, be warned. And perhaps the most worrisome warning of all comes in verse 18. You're going to cry out to me because of your king. It's going to happen. And when you do, verse 18 says, the Lord will not answer you in that day. You're going to learn that everything I warned you about is true. That I spoke truth to you, Israel. And you're going to wish you had never asked for the king. And I'm not, I'm not going to answer you in that day because you refuse to listen to me in this day. So don't come to me in that day and shake your fist at me and say, why didn't you tell me? Because God will say, I did tell you. I did warn you. You know, far too often we act like that child who wants to try the jalapeno when it comes to the clear warnings of Scripture. We read them, we hear the warnings, we listen to them, and we just don't believe it's going to be true for us. The Bible is full of warnings, and so many of us spend our lives ignoring them. We could spend the rest of this morning looking at the warnings of Scripture. We, of course, don't have time for that. Let me give you just a few examples. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 29 says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. The warning could not be more clear. Do everything necessary to avoid lust in your life. That's the warning, right? Jesus is speaking with poetic hyperbole, saying if you have to rip your eye out, he doesn't mean literally, but he means do whatever is necessary because it's better that you give up whatever it is you need to give up than to be condemned to hell for all eternity. That's a crystal clear warning. It's dangerous. It requires intentional effort to avoid. Well, how do most of us respond to that warning? That's good advice. I'll take it under consideration. I mean, let's be honest. We think we're above it. 
We think we can handle it and other lesser people can't. We make intentional decisions, men, to watch those shows that are on those streaming networks because it's a good story. And yet it is profane pornography on display in the midst of it. I'm not trying to be a legalist here. I'm just giving you the warning of Jesus. You know the shows I'm talking about. You take the blaring red signal of God's warning and you just blow right through it and say, I don't need to heed the warning. And it can destroy your soul. We're no better than the Israelites. We think we're wise in ourselves. And God graciously warns us of the dangers of our sin because they're going to destroy us if they're left to fester in our souls. And so I plead with you this morning, don't be like the people of Israel. Listen to Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Let me read that one part again. Covetousness, which is idolatry. When you covet what other people have, you're worshiping a false god. Holiday season's a really good time to be reminded of that, is it not? On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Be warned. A word about 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. What a stern warning. Don't let yourself become a lover of money. It's dangerous. It will destroy your soul. Why? Well, because again, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 21, Jesus said to us, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We often get that teaching from Jesus reversed. And we think Jesus said, where your heart is, there your treasure will be. As if we're saying, well, if your heart's in something, you're going to give money to it. No, he's saying, whatever you're putting your money into is going to draw your heart toward it. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if you love money and you're putting your money in things that are ungodly, guess what your heart's going to be drawn toward? Ungodliness. Look, here's, here's the point. When God warns you and says to you, if you do X, Y is going to happen, believe him. The people of Israel did not believe him. They said, okay, whatever. Sure, he'll take all our sons. He'll take our fields. He'll take our vineyards. He'll take our daughters. He'll take the choicest of everything we have. He'll take 10% from us. We'll become his slaves. Whatever. Give us the king. Do not reject God's gracious warnings. They are a gift from him. Don't walk in the path of Israel. Don't forget God's faithfulness. Don't ignore his gracious warnings. And finally, their final step is the sovereign king rejected. You see that in verses 19 through 22. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, no. I don't really know what they mean by no. (laughs) No, God's not telling us the truth. No, we don't care. No, that's not going to happen. Probably all of that. No. It's like, I mean, not to keep harping on the child thing, but it's childish. No, we want a king. No, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Well, what's the problem with that? The problem is God always fought their battles for them. Always. 
when they're in captivity of Egypt, did they put weapons together and fight their way out of Egypt? No. God brought supernatural, overwhelming plague after plague. When Pharaoh came running after them, after he changed his mind about letting them go, did they fight against Pharaoh? Did they battle him off? No. God put a pillar of fire between Pharaoh's army and their army, while overnight the waters parted. And the people walked through the waters. God lifted up the pillar of fire that separated them so that the Pharaoh and the army of the Egyptians could go into the sea so that he could crash the waters over them and wipe them all out. They didn't need a king to do that. Or when they finally get done with the wilderness wanderings, when they had not trusted God to bring victory over Jericho, and finally they're at the end, and now they're going in. God says to them, how do they defeat Jericho? Just just want you to walk around the city. (laughs) Just walk around it. And when you shout on the seventh time around, the seventh day, the the seventh time you've done it, on that day, just shout, and I'm going to take the wall down for you. Or even just a little bit later in that same chapter, after the walls of Jericho go falling down, they then go and fight against the Amorites. And in the book of Joshua, it says, God threw down large stones from heaven to wipe them out. And more people were killed by the stones that day than the swords. And he caused the sun to stand still in the sky so they could keep winning. But we want a king. Or you get into the days of the judges that I know we've talked about a bunch, but time after time, when they cry out, God delivers them. We've talked about Gideon, I know, dozens of times over the past few months. But right, think about it again. He raises up Gideon, gives him 300 men and says, that's enough to go wipe out this army that is as numerous as the sands on the seashore. They don't need a king. They have one. They don't need a king to win their battles. They have a king who's already winning their battles. It's the whole point. And it just happened in chapter 7. Samuel, the Philistines are threatening us. We're afraid. We don't know what to do. Will you plead to the Lord for us? Yes, I'll cry out to the Lord. He cries out to the Lord. You see that there in chapter 7. Verse 10, Samuel was offering up the burnt offering. The Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty shout that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. In other words, all the people of Israel needed to do was look at their history and fear not, your God is with you. (laughs) Psalm chapter 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. That's what King David himself says in Psalm 20, verse 7. Yet every day you and I face the temptation to lean on the ways of the world to bring us safety and security. And when we count on the ways of the world to bring us safety and security, we are rejecting our sovereign king who has already promised to give it to us. Psalm 127, 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. In other words, it doesn't matter how big your army is, Israel. It doesn't matter how powerful your king is, Israel, unless the Lord is the one who is watching over your city. Jesus says to us in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So where do we put our hope, church? Look, I fear in our modern culture, in our particular context, that far too many of us are putting our hope in government and politics. It's not where our hope lies, brothers and sisters. Our hope lies in Jesus. We don't need the ways of the world. All we need is King Jesus. 
I'm not saying you shouldn't vote. I'm not saying you shouldn't vote wisely. I'm not saying you shouldn't make godly decisions in the voting booth. Don't hear me saying any of that. But when you lay your head on your pillow at night, what gives you comfort and peace? Who's in the White House or who's sitting on the throne of heaven? Far too many of us let anxiety and worry fill our hearts based on government and politics and academics and the stock market and the power of personality. And what Samuel 8 reminds us of is we have a sovereign king. We don't need any other ones. We will prevail. So let's just pursue faithfulness by the grace of God. Now, verse 22 ends by God giving them exactly what they asked for. The Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Give them what they want. Ultimately, this is both a blessing and a curse. It is a curse because God warned them what this king would be like. But it is a blessing because ultimately God did in the end want there to be a king of Israel. He did want there to be a king who would come from the tribe of Judah. And so God uses their evil desires to bring about his righteous purposes because this is how our God operates. Our evil, wicked desires don't get in the way of him doing what he has said he's going to do. And he said he would raise up a seed from the womb of Eve who would crush the head of Satan. He said that he would bring a king from the tribe of Judah who would forever hold the scepter. He said that the lion from the line of David would come one day and would rule and would be the righteous king. You see, the king that God said he desired in Deuteronomy 17, when he said, look, one day you'll ask for a king. But Deuteronomy 17 goes on to say, that king will write a hand copy of my law. That king will meditate on my word day and night. That king will be a righteous spiritual leader, not one who of military might. That's not his main concern. God can fight his own battles. That's not the king they asked for. But praise be to God, it's the king he eventually gives us. And he sent Jesus, the lion from the tribe of Judah, to reign over his people. God faithfully provided the king that he said the people could ask for in Deuteronomy 17. And as I mentioned, it is this king that came not to take, but to give. It is this king that came not to be served, but to serve. It is this king who came to lay down his life in our place, who came to rescue you and redeem you, who came to live the righteous life that you couldn't, who came to take the wrath and condemnation that you deserved on himself, this king who victoriously rose from the grave on the third day. It is that king in whom we can now place our hope. Don't forget God's faithfulness to you. Don't ever forget God's faithfulness to you. Heed the warnings that he has given us. Pursue Christ and follow him as your sovereign king. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the truth of your word, for the warnings that you give us, for how you have revealed yourself to us. And Father, we are so thankful that you sent Jesus to be our king. We don't deserve him. Father, what we deserve is what the Israelites requested. We, we deserve to get the evil, wicked desires of our hearts. But we're so thankful that through Christ, through his finished work on the cross, you have given us a new heart. You've removed our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh. And so we pray that you would day by day continue to shape our wants and our desires to be aligned with your wants and your desires. Father, I pray that we would never forget your faithfulness to us. I pray that all of us as your people would would put down markers in our life to remind ourselves that you have been faithful so that we will not forget 
and be on a pathway to sin and rebellion. But instead, we will remember, just as you were faithful 10 years ago and last year, you will be faithful a year from now, 10 years from now, and a 1,000 years from now. You are a faithful God that we can build our lives on. Father, help us to trust you enough to heed the warnings of your word, to not trust in our own wisdom, but to trust in what you have said to us. And Father, I pray that you would keep our hope fixed on Christ our sovereign, eternal, good, gracious King. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.